It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Terrence Otway, DSO. Otway served in the British Army during World War II and led the successful attack on a crucial German gun battery in the hours before the D-Day invasion. A week after I'd been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in March and taken over the command of the battalion, March 1944, um, I was told to go to a farmhouse near Amesbury, where we were, in Wiltshire. And there I was shown a model and I was locked into the room. And told to study the model with a view to capture of a battery. And that was all the briefing I got, a battery. Then I looked at the model and there was a, a battery on it. I got the whole picture of, of, the, of the model in my mind and then called in the briefing officer, who was the brigade major called um, Bill Collingwood. And I was then shown a detailed model of the Merville battery. And my first reaction was, it seems stupid to jump over what they call the Atlantic Wall, as they called it generally yesterday, and land outside another fortress. So, as I said, that was my first reaction. And I said, we must put people inside as well as outside. So then I got on with my plan. And in general, it was an assault on the outside with landing a half a company, no, a whole company, on the inside by glider. On the air photographed, they showed an anti-tank ditch to the north of the battery, i.e. on the English Channel side. Now, they were constructing that as though they were going to go all the way around, so I thought I'd better cater for the fact that it might be there on the south side when we landed. So I decided that I'd have to have special lightweight footbridges made to run over, for the troops to run over. And it so happened that the assistant chief of the general staff was an ex-member of the Royal Ulster Rifles, General Sir Jack Everts. So I rang him up direct, broke all the rules. You should go through staff, you know, and everything else. Well, I went to 
telephone and rang him up. And he said, come and meet me. And I said, can you have these made? And he said, yes, I can have them made within a week. So they were actually made, although we never took them, which has never been published because we knew that it wasn't there. The last, the RAF went over and photographed it the day before. So the RAF were flying over every day and taking pictures and coming back. And we would have them within hours of them landing. It was uh, the, the ditch, because I th- we thought the ditch was going to be there, the minefields, and more than that, the war. Because we knew that they had this, I forget what the army term was, rolled barbed wire. Concertina. Concertina barbed wire with apron wire on top of it. And it was inside the apron wire. That was my biggest worry. Then the minefields after that. Uh, plus the fact that the, the ratio of, in the British Army, of an attack onto a fortified, uh, fortified place like this was six to one, i.e. The, the attackers should outnumber the defenders by six to one. We were told that there would be a garrison of 150. I was warned that we might get scattered, we might have a very, very bad drop. And I was very worried that I might be even less than uh, attacking with a, a force less than 150 and turned out to be true. That was a big worry. Yeah, I had a battalion of 600. And then if you added in the specialists, support teams, support troops, yes, I had roughly 700, 750 engineers and that sort of thing. But as it turned out, I didn't have any engineers. Well, the first thing I did was brief them all in the dining room in the barracks, dining hall of the barracks. I had already decided that I had to have a mock-up battery resembling as near as possible the real objective. But in addition to that, after looking at the problem, I decided it must be on ground as similar. So I told the intelligent people I wanted a patch of ground which was as near as possible, exactly the same as the drop area, the approach from the drop area to the outside of the wire, from the wire into the battery, and they must construct a model and find me a bit of ground. They said, they can't do it. So I said, well, I'll do it. So I flew over the area with a brigade major, picked out the ground near Newbury, and then found that there were seven ministries involved in Whitehall. Seven, believe it or not. And four of them, representatives, came down. They, I said, I want this, that hillock leveled. I want everything done within seven days. They said, impossible. I said, bollocks. <laughs> That's got to be done. So I learned that there was an earth, the only earth moving equipment of any side was in Plymouth. So I arranged for it to be brought up straight away. I just rang up and said, get it. I got a hell of a rocket. And uh, that was basically it. I did it on my own. With the assistant of brigade headquarters, they were behind me. They also got a rocket. The engineers built them out of uh, mock-ups, out of netting and that sort of thing. And uh, we actually put in, in the ground, mock mines, 
which went off. They came up and went off with a firecracker noise. We, it's all been written down, when I, I'm trying to remember, we rehearsed nine times, five by day and four by night or the other way around, crawling through this damn stuff. And yes, we, we, we put it there, if you like, so that every single man knew exactly what he had to do and where he had to go. That was very important because if, and it turned out to be, it paid off huge dividend because we expected to be dropped wide, but not, we didn't expect such a bad drop as we got. But it was essential that every man knew where he was so that he could get to the rendezvous on his own, if necessary, and if we had moved off, follow us and catch us up and take part in the attack. So every, every man, they had air photographs and he was questioned about his route four or five times. The average age of the battalion was 20. I was 29, one of the, uh, one of the overs. I think there were only two men over than me in the battalion. When you had walks, runs every week, every day, you were cursing the brigadier. I mean, he was, James was four years older than me, I think, and he would appear uh, with his red tabs on and we'd be doubling along and, and thinking we were doing very fast. He'd come on, you're too bloody slow. Get out in front and follow me and go like hell. And it was that. I'm exaggerating when I say every day, but it was about three times a week. Right up to the final test was you had to do... Uh, a 50-mile march in 24 hours, carrying all equipment, which we did in Scotland. We flew to Scotland from Salisbury Plain. We dropped in the ne Nether Valley, I think it's called, in Scotland. We attacked, did a mock attack up a mountain um, called Ben McDewey. It's the second highest in Scotland, four and a half thousand feet, I think. Who's my wife? She, you there, Jeannie? No, she knows about the height. We did that in the dark. There were, there were troops on top of it, uh, got it. And we then did this force march from uh, wherever it was there to Edinburgh, 50 miles in just under 24 hours, carrying full equipment. So they were fit. There was such a... a a good bunch. We'd weeded out the, the uh, sick and the lame, if you like. Holes, what do you call it? Holes in the lame. And uh, we'd weeded them out. And no, I had absolute confidence in them. They were very, very keen. They were completely unafraid. And they were a very brave lot. And the officers and non-coms were of a very high standard. Very intelligent team. I always had dunned into me when I was in the regular army. You cannot have good officers unless you have good troops. And that was very true. They were proud. They considered it an honor to go in first, both your chaps and ours. And it's, it's not, in my view, it has never been written up properly that, that your people were had two main training areas, uh, up in Lincolnshire and down in Berkshire. And the ones in Berkshire and us, we fraternized a lot. We, we exchanged training and everything else. That's never been made 
were really public, I don't think, and it should have been. I had briefed all the officers about a week ahead or something. I think we were in transit camp for two or three weeks from memory. And they, the company commanders, then had to brief all the troops and then the platoon commanders, and so that those two days before I spent my time walking around, checking up, they were briefing properly. But the last afternoon, I spent us sleeping. Um, I reckon I wasn't going to get any sleep. I forbade any alcohol to be drunk the day before. So the officer's mess was all on soft drinks the night before, didn't I? I wouldn't have any alcohol drunk. We were scared out of our wits. We didn't know what was going to happen. I don't think you can say we were excited. It was, everybody was very quiet. And sitting in the aircraft, there wasn't a sound. Nobody spoke. Somebody once published, we sang. We didn't sing. Very quiet. I get the willies now if I think about it. There was a little flack when we got over the French coast, yes, but not much. Nothing to worry about. There was no problem getting to the rendezvous except for the flooding. You know about that, do you? Well, it slowed you down. It was that we, we knew that uh, Rommel had ordered that the area was to be flooded. Uh, we'd seen the air photographs taken, as I said, a day or two beforehand. And we knew what we were up against. And I personally was wading through water up to my chest. And uh, in a uniform drying on you afterwards was pretty uncomfortable. And you had to carry a weapon over your head. And uh, the other effect it had that some of the troops were carrying kit bags, which was tied to their right leg. Do you know this? Leg this bags. Leg bags. And then when they were shoot open... They let go the cord, and it, it dropped about 20 foot long below them. And actually, the people carrying it liked it because it slowed the landing, gave them a very good uh, soft landing. It acted as a anchor, if you like. Those that were carrying that went into the water, had no hope, and they were drowned. And I saw well, three or four chaps drowned in front of me. There was nothing one could do. Actually, another man called Woodgate, who was the staff captain, John Woodgate, and I, I met him by chance going from the rendezvous, and we tried to pull out a chap. We couldn't get him out. Uh, the other problem was when I got to the rendezvous, I, my batman or orderly, you call him orderly, don't you? Um, same, same difference. He got there first, although he stood behind me in the aircraft, but he, could, he got there first and uh, told me there were only 50 men out of the 700 plus. And we didn't get up to more than 150. Well, first of all, I guessed that because I'd been warned by people who'd done this before, there was going to be trouble. So I didn't tell anybody, but I kept, a, in my timing, I kept an extra quarter of an hour uh, to allow partly for this, but I didn't tell my brigadier or anybody else. And nobody queried it, funnily enough. So I had that in hand, and that enabled me to get up to 150. Well, then I was faced with the, the alternatives. You either go on or you give up. There's no halfway. You can't give up. I mean, you can never speak to your friends again if you gave up. And uh, so I had to reorganize. And instead of having four companies, I 
made it into four platoons and left at the proper time and crossed my fingers and hoped it would work. I thought that when they realized what was going to happen, they'd say, oh, God, and get the shivers and everything else. Not a bit of it. There wasn't one man who displayed any excitement or worry about it at all. They just accepted it. They just knew we had the job to do, and uh, they accepted the reorganization. I was astonished. And I think this was due to the training. I think we had succeeded in the physical and, more important, the mental training. And we'd got to the stage where they, they would accept anything and they knew they had to do the job. And mind you, to get a man to be fully mentally trained and aware, he's got to be physically fit first. You will never, you'll never ever do it the other way around. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, first of all, it was pitch dark. I'd sent out some scouts ahead. And one of them came back and said that there was a German patrol heading our way. And it turned out to be, we counted them as they went by, about 60 men. And we went, we being the large battalion of 100, 100 and something, <laughs> went into shell holes. And in my case, I could have reached out and taken them by the ankle. They didn't hear us. They were stupid. So there was no German reaction at all on the ground between us and the battery. First of all, I reorganized the thing on a basis of platoons instead of companies. And secondly, I, I told the officer commanding B Company, which was the assault company, I think he had, 20, from memory, 20 lanes of Bangalore torpedoes. You know the, what they were, right. uh, instead of whatever we were supposed to have. I, I said, how many gaps can you blow? And he said, two or three, so I said, okay, do that. And I said, you cross the wire by getting some volunteers and telling them to lie down on, on the barbed wire, hands like that, and the others run over their backs as a bridge. They all volunteered, all of them. 
But it was rather like I told you that I'd thought that it didn't make sense to land outside the battery if you can land inside. And we, so I nominated A Company, which was 150 strong. And when the company commander, Alan Parry, calls for volunteers to go in by glider to this, and saying he wanted 60 out of the, and warning them that probably they might all be killed, the whole, whole company stepped forward. He, as he being a chap called Harold Bestley, was, who was the company commander, so his company was down to a platoon, basically, he, I suppose, and we reinforced that. He attacked, I suppose, with 50, about 50 men. The others were mortar platoon and machine gun and so on. But let's say 60. He divided them up into four groups. He took off. He would, he would have taken off, say, 20% as a reserve, divided the rest into four groups, and told them to get round the front and get in, throwing grenades down the barrels, not to blow them up. You can't blow, a hand grenade won't blow up a hard steel barrel. But going off inside, it makes one heck of a row and uh, can st- could stun people. So that basically was the attack, uh, was the plan. And they went in firing from the hip. They all had stand machine, machine guns, hand machine guns. A direct frontal infantry attack. I'd arranged for a bugle to be blown. We lay down outside the wire. We went, went very, very quietly, took up position ready to assault over and through the wire. We were going to blow two gaps instead of the original four because of the shortage of explosive tubes, bang and torpedoes. As soon as they went up, we were to go through those gaps and over the inside wire. We couldn't, uh, hadn't got enough to blow the inside wire. I thought, but actually we did blow some gaps in the inside wire. So the assault troops went through first. The support platoon or company, we'll stick to the original name, support company followed. I was in the gap. I went up with the leading troops and I stood in the gap while the others passed me. Uh, I was criticized for that because as a commander, I, people said I should have been at the head, to which I replied, well, what the hell use would I have been if I'd been dead as a, as a commander? I was directing there. And I was uh, I was actually hit. Um, not uh, My equipment was hit, not me. I got one through the my haversack and one through a side haversack and a bullet right through it went through the back of my uniform. So I was lucky. And... Uh, the troops then spread out, went round to the seaward side, while one party went to the entrance, which was on the landward side, throwing grenades in there with the doors which were shut or kicked them open and whatnot. The other party went round to the open side where the, where the guns were firing towards the sea and attacked in there with stand guns. So uh, the Germans that were there were killed or wounded, but a great number of them were actually down below. Have you been, been yes. there? Well, you notice there a, a, a chamber underneath uh, each gun, and they were down there. And so those were the ones who were left, who came out with their hands up. Well, we took the breech blocks out and threw them away, right out into the, into the fields. 
You can't fire a gun without a breech block. Uh, yes, there were spares, obviously, somewhere, but they would have had to rattle around. And uh, this is what we planned to do on the basis that by the time they had found any new beach blocks where they'd put them, the main wave of seaborne troops would have got in. Because don't forget, my orders were not to destroy the gun, it was to neutralise them. That word has been consistently overlooked. And if you can neutralise the gun and stop them firing, you've done your job, even if you don't have explosives to, to blow the things up. Uh, we did, as I said, put grenades down them, so therefore that would cause a bit of a trouble because they'd have had to get all the metal splinters and everything out of the guns before they could put any shells in. So that's what we did. But that's all we could do because we didn't have, as you know, the explosives and so on. With those four guns going flat out, it probably would have cancelled out the left flank of the British landing, which would have meant that the Germans could have withdrawn the troops from that part of the coast, put them further down, even in front of the American parts of them. And so it could well have been, yes, disastrous from that part. It could have meant that the Germans could have grabbed uh, Pegasus Bridge and could have come in on the left flank. And after that, who knows what would have happened. Instead of the Allies all the way along landing and pushing in. I think, think uh, I don't think that's exaggerating. Once of that part of it was done, I sent the success signal up, which was a green, red, green, I forget, very light. And an RAF aircraft went over, wagged its wings like that, uh, which was this. Uh, acknowledgement signal. My signal officer then produced a pigeon out of his uh, inside pocket and wrote out a message, and that went back to Whitehall, London, actually, <laughs> landed in Whitehall. Uh, so that, that was a success signal. I then had to regroup with what little lot I had and go on to the next objective because they'd given me an awful lot to do. I was supposed to attack Omfaville. I was supposed to attack another post up near the coast. But I had, what did I have left? Uh, about 50-odd men, I think. They didn't put up any real resistance at all. Yes, of course, we, I lost men, but uh, I lost a lot of men. But those, they were the machine gunners who could, who could, had the opportunity to calculate that, yes, the those British had, couldn't get to me, I'm a machine gunner, but the ordinary infantry put their hands up straight away. We took, I think, 23 prisoners out of the 150 of the garrison, and the rest were killed or wounded. I've got a, a brochure, which, little thing which I got from Steiner, who, as I, as I said, was away, but he is on record of saying that when he got back to the battery, he only had 12 unwounded men who were capable of firing guns out of the 150. So uh, that gives you the scale of our success, basically. We attacked at five. It was over, as you say, very quickly. So round about between half past five and six, we moved off towards Ompreville. And on the way, as I said, we were 
greeted by this Frenchman. I, I moved but deliberately between in the corn. The corn was high. Whether it made sense or not, I don't know, but I, I, it occurred to me that if we move through the corn, uh, the Germans might be misled, could only see the tops of our heads if they up the ones up on the hill at Enfreville. I think it worked because they didn't seem to know that we were there. And uh, as we went through, um, we had to go, before we got to the corn, we went along a lane with troops, with, with trees on either side of it, and... Uh, your Air Force dropped a great string of bloody great bombs about 50 to 100 yards away from us. New fortresses came over. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anybody had bothered to tell them that we were there. It was pretty frightening that it happened. It was far more frightening than, than the attack on the battery because the bombs were big and just the row they made. And uh, we all dived into the ditch. Cursing, I'm afraid, the USAF. Um, but uh, it wasn't their fault. Nobody told them. Then we went on. Uh, we went to Omfreville. We took up a position there. Nothing happened. I was walking around the village green the rest of that day. The Germans did then attack us the next day or two, but we repulsed them until eventually we went on to this place called the Chateau Saint-Combe. I was ordered to take that, which, have you been, you've been to the, well, if you, you, you know where the Chateau was, and you, you, there's the road and there's a long drive up to it. Well, now, we were in those trees opposite to that, that gate. Now, if you turned your back on that and looked down into the valley, you can see that anybody who held that bit of ground commanded the whole thing, right. including the bridge, everything. And that's what I was told to hold. Uh, what was the expression? Oh, at all costs, which in, in, in the parachute regiment, yours and ours, means until the last man. And so we dug in and took up a defence position, but of course I had very few men then. And then I gradually, gradually built up to where the Black Watch came up. And they were put under my command. And I think I got up to it total of black watts and hours and odds and sods of about 450 men altogether. And uh, what I did was I put the black watch out in front of the manor, the chateau, put my some, one of my platoons in the chateau and then made my own defence uh, between the front, between the road and the chateau and back of the road by the bungalow. That was about it. I wasn't surprised. I'd been warned to expect chaos. No, I wasn't pleased. I was bloody angry. Um, I really was angry, and I was very tired. And, all right, is this going to be broadcast as I speak or not? <laughs> I was going to say pissed off. <laughs> and uh, uh, I really was fed up and tired and ang angry. I, was, I know, I was being unreasonably angry. I, my attitude is, why the hell does this happen to us? We knew we were going to be dispersed, but why out of 750 men have I only now got 100? That sort of thinking. Unreasonable, I know, but there we were. I was just angry. I'm an Irishman, so I get angry. <laughs> so... Uh, 
No, I, I wasn't angry at anybody in particular. I suppose angry at circumstances. Angry at God, if you like. I don't know. But I do remember being angry. I also remember when we got to um, the Onfreville, where we were uh, down to 80 men, and uh, the Germans were outnumbering us, and I was on the point, literally on the point of surrendering, because I had, I think, three rounds of, men, of ammunition left per man, and one of my officers, a chap called Greenway, who afterwards became Lord Greenway, captain, came up to me, and without any ceremony at all, he didn't say Carl or anything else. I don't know how, why he wasn't with his company, but anyway, he came up and he said, look, stop mucking about, take a brace on yourself and get out there and do it. <laughs> really, literally like that. He saved my life, really, and he, he, he was good. Paul Greenway, Captain the Honourable, he was then, he became Lord Greenway later. It needed somebody to do that. Because it's, uh, you, you must admit, other men who had this experience, when you're, you're on your own and you haven't got any support, close friends, supporting after, it's quite a test. And well, there we were. Even being in the chateau at, uh, and having these waves and after wave after wave they, where they started with the platoon and then they went up to a company, then a company, a couple of companies, and they brought up reserves and eventually threw in a whole damn brigade of three battalion dealers. Even that wasn't as bad as that particular time. Just after it, uh, they, they, at the shadow, they threw in a whole infantry brigade at us. And we were, as I said, 400 strong, including the Black Watch, sappers. We even had glider pilots in the front line who had landed and rendezvoused to us. A couple of RAF men. Yeah. That was tough, but it was something you could handle. You could see. You, you could plan for it. I mean, for example, if you go to, you look at the Chateau Saint-Com, the, the drive, uh, the road is here and the Chateau's where you are and the drive's up there. Well, over there is a great big open patch. I made that a killing ground. I didn't have any troops up the left there. I deliberately made it so that the Germans only had one way of attacking me. When we were relieved by Napier Crookenden, uh, who um, came up to take over the battalion from me, uh, no, sorry, he was brigade major, came up to look at the place. He didn't take over till later. He had to order parties up to remove the German dead because the relieving battalion, which was the Oxford-Jern, Buckingham, Identity, hadn't got a field of fire. As I said earlier, the two most important objectives for Sixth Airborne Division uh, were the capture of the bridge known now as Pegasus Bridge and the capture of the Mervio Battery. The, the, the job of the Sixth Airborne Division was to defend the left flank, flank of the Second British Army, uh, or if you like, the Third Division and then the Second British Army. A, to stop the Germans coming over the Pegasus Bridge, which would have been disastrous, and B, to stop the guns of the Merville Battery firing over the beaches. 
So uh, as far as I'm concerned, the Ninth Parish Battalion did one of the most important jobs in the Second World War, the invasion of, of France. Full stop. I, I don't think that's exaggerating. But I don't take the credit for it. I, the, the credit is on the men who did the job. Okay, I was, I was the boss and I did the planning, but the fellows on the ground did the job, not me. And I don't mean that to be big-headed or conceited in any way. I mean it quite sincerely. Again, it, it, it reflects on their training, but it also reflects on their character and their mental ability and their standard of intelligence, that they were able to accept the orders, face what they had to do, knowing the danger and the fact that they, Brown, Smith, or whoever, might not come through it, might be killed. Yet they accepted it without a murmur. Not one expression of dissent or anything else. In the preceding months before the operation, you have got to instill them by a mixture of urging, swearing, cursing, uh, friendliness. You've got to have complete confidence in them and you have got to deliberately set about to, to make them have complete confidence in you and the other officers. If they don't have confidence in the man who's commanding, they won't do the job. Now, don't ask me how I do that, because I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that apparently they had confidence in me and they did it. It's described as leadership. Some people say you can't make leadership. Other people say you make it. I don't know. All I know is that I, I knew that that job could be done. I knew that those men would do the job to the best of their ability. I had full confidence in them. Mind you, I think, having said that, if you have confidence in the men, you know that the end product is going to be right. It's like if you are building a car and you have confidence in, or anything, you have confidence in the material as you're using, you have confidence in the end product. And I think it's, a, it's analogous to that. I'm proud of the fact that the Ninth Parachute Battalion did the job it was asked to do, despite the uh, problems. As simple as that. I'm still very proud of them. There are not many of them left, but you went, you met them there. See what sort of bunch of men. But having said that, and I don't want to denigrate them in any way, they're, they're no better or worse than any other parachute battalion. Any other parish would tell him, British or American or French or whatever, would have done that job, I reckon. And one must say that, and it's not, I think, has not been said enough. When your people at, um, what was the, the fault, the, the difficult job you had, 82nd, I think, and the Sherbrooke Peninsula had, was, was, was equivalent to ours, anyway. I know Nat Huskett has often told me about it. It's the same. The, the parachute troops of any, uh, any army are, I think, a 
classes so do apart. Regimental Sergeant Major was a very old friend of mine. He, when I joined the army, because I was a regular army soldier for 12, 14 years, when I joined the army in Gravesend as a second lieutenant, this chap was a lance corporal in my platoon uh, in the Royal Arts Rifles, and he worked his way up, and he was a company sergeant major in the time before D-Day with the Royal Arts Rifles, and I asked for him and got him as regimental sergeant major to the 9th Parish Battalion. And he was a close friend, as well as being the senior warrant officer. And the worst moment for me was coming back from a conference at the Lemaine Crossroads to be told that Bill Cunningham was dead, having been shit hit by a splinter shell in the back of his head, and to see him there. That was the worst moment for me in the whole war. It was a complete shock. If he'd been hit in the fighting, the hand-to-hand fighting, and he had, he'd been engaged in the hand-to-hand fighting, I think I could have taken it. But the fact that he was walking around behind the lines doing, uh, supervising things and was killed doing it was terrific shock. I find this sort of interview a strain. I still find it a strain. Perhaps still is the wrong word. I do find it a strain. It's a physical and mental strain. I don't know why. I can't explain that. But it is. I feel that operation still. I still feel it intensely when I think back over it. I still get the feeling, was I in any way to blame for the fact that I set off with 700 men and finished up with less than 100? And I think a lot of chaps in my position feel the same. I've spoken to several other men who were in their 20s as commanding officers and lost a lot of men in those landings. And it stays with me anyway. My wife will tell you, I mean, I used to wake up with dreams at night shutting my head off. I don't anymore, but I did start with Luckily, the rest of it's gone. But I, I talked to a friend who was a psychiatrist, and he said, don't worry about it, it's, it's natural. There we are. So not, it's out of my head now, except for these odd feelings I get, and this sort of interview brings it back up. But uh, I think it's inevitable. Well, with me, it was. Uh, that's the way I feel. I used to, I used to have moments of sitting back up at the Chateau and calm when nothing was happening and thinking, what what the hell happened? What Have I done anything wrong? Why, why all these huge casualties? It, it, you think, are you to blame, I think? And I know that others have had it. Maybe Crookenden says he never had it. I don't believe him. But then I've known Napier a long time. He was at Santos with me. Same company. And I know that Napier puts on a front, and I know that the front is not always what he's feeling. That was Lieutenant Colonel Terence Otway, DSL. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. 
Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.